So welcome to the Ambulance Science Podcast. This is Scott Phelps, and I'm here with my partner in crime, a, a newly braceless Maria Werner. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we are under the impression that we are the same person in two different bodies with some limited gender differences, because <laughs> like Maria, I also had braces when I was 30, when I was serving as Assistant Commissioner of Health for the City of New York. So, uh, Maria, welcome back after a long hiatus. Um, mm -hmm. Many things have changed for both of us, and uh, this is going to be the Ambulance Science Podcast. I wanted to talk about um, one thing that is has been in the news probably more last month, but um, I always, how can I put this? I always sometimes think that people don't always think through all of the uh, positive and negative implications of things. So I want to talk about that um, Vanderbilt nurse, uh, Rodonda Vaught, who was just recently convicted of um, criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult on March 25th. And the reason I want to talk about this case is because um, well, not only was it pretty important for uh, nurses and for healthcare in general and for EMS as well uh, in the long run, but uh, I think there's two very important points about it that um, I wanna make sure that people understand. So basically, I wanna go over the story for a minute. Um, so Redina Vaught was a 39-year-old registered nurse she was serving as the help all nurse at Vanderbilt University, which is sort of a floating position, uh, no specific job description, but she was uh, actually, she roamed about the hospital handling specific problems. Uh, on December 26, 2017, she, she had a, an orientee with her and she was asked to go down to radiology PET scan and give Brissed to a 75 year old female who had been hospitalized a few days before for a subdural hematoma. Um, and because she had a, uh, she couldn't tolerate the PET scan without it. She needed a sedative to be able to go into the machine uh, or else they were gonna have to reschedule it. So Ms. Vaught pulled the medication from the Pixis machine, put the medication vial in a baggie and wrote PET scan versed one to two milligrams. It went down to radiology to administer the medication. She had never been to PET scan before, so she had to ask for directions. And when she found it, she checked the patient, um, told her that she was going to give her some medication to help her relax. She gave the medicine to the patient, and then she left. Um, so within the hour, uh, because the woman, had, uh, the woman had to wait for the medication to take effect and had to wait for the PET scanner to open up, when the transporter found her to bring her into the PET scanner, the uh, transporter found her unresponsive and the radiology tech called a rapid response and started CPR. So resuscitation was begun. And by the time nurse Vaughn had gotten back to the patient, the patient had been intubated, the heart rate had returned to normal. And nurse Vaughn told the team that she administered the Versa to the patient only a few minutes before. Um, a, the sec a second nurse approached her and said, is, the, is this the med you gave to Miss Murphy? Vaught responded, yes. And then the number, the other nurse said, this isn't Versed, it's vecuronium. 
And Vaughn went into Murphy's room and informed the physician and the nurse practitioner that she had made a mistake and administered becaronium to Murphy instead of Bursette. Uh, the patient was declared brain dead on January, January 27th and removed from life support when she died. So there's a whole bunch of uh, errors that occurred. Um, and if you're into risk management, there's a bunch of theories about how to control risks. And some of them involve uh, sort of a defense in depth strategy where you have like a Swiss cheese of controls. Uh, and some of them involve uh, oversight. Some of them involve sort of ways of doing things. But that's not how things worked at Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt had paper regulations, but they didn't really enforce any of them. And in fact, nurses couldn't do their job if they tried to follow the regulations on paper at Vanderbilt. So she searched for the medication by trade name instead of by generic. Um, she selected Becuronium instead of uh, Bedazolam or Versed, even though she was looking for Versed. She overrode the warnings uh, that the medication uh, was not the prescribed medication. No less than five times she hit the override button. She ignored the warning on the medication bottle that it was a paralytic. Uh, there was also, it was in red, in all caps on the cap, she ignored that, that it was a paralytic. She didn't compare the medication vial to what she was looking for. She didn't verify the medication, which was in powdered form and had to be reconstituted compared to Brissette, which isn't, doesn't come in powdered form. Although she found it odd, she didn't look any further into it. She reconstituted the Vecaronium without uh, checking it again. Uh, she gave the wrong medication, obviously, and then she failed to monitor the patient. But she was a float nurse. She wasn't a radiology nurse. Um, and so while it's surprising, it's also not surprising. Now, there's a lot of errors here. I'm not saying there's not. Uh, but here's what happened. Here was, here, was, here was the resulting timeline. So in January 18, Vanderbilt doesn't disclose anything to the state or federal officials, which is required by law or to the Joint Commission. And of course, this should come as no surprise, Vought was fired. Uh, sometime in 2018, Vanderbilt negotiated an out-of-court settlement with the, Murphy, uh, with the patient's family, required them not to speak publicly about the death or the medication error, trying to close all doors to any publicity. However, in October 18, um, an anonymous tipster alerts both state and federal officials that an unreported medication error was responsible for Murphy's death. So, you know, this is the cover-up. This is not the kind of sort of cover-up. This is um, point blank. I mean, what, what else are you gonna call it? Um, the Tennessee Department of Health in October 2018 said not to pursue disciplinary actions against Vought initially, um, however, in October and November 2018, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services conducted a surprise inspection at Vanderbilt where um, it confirmed that uh, what happened. And I've attached the report to this uh, podcast document so you can actually see the report for yourself. The, in late November 2018, the circumstances of the, of the death became public for the first time with CMS releasing an investigation report. 
And Vanderbilt threatened to suspend, excuse me, CMS threatened to suspend Vanderbilt's Medicare payments um, if they didn't implement a plan of um, correction immediately. So the nurse was publicly identified in February 19 because she was subsequently arrested for her role in Murphy's death. And she was charged with reckless, reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. Tennessee Department of Health reversed its decision not to pursue professional discipline in September 19. And Vaughn was charged with unprofessional conduct, abandoning, abandoning or neg neg uh, neglecting a patient that required care and failing to maintain an accurate patient record. In July 21, Tennessee Board of Nursing revoked Vaughn's nursing license. 2022, in March 2022, the criminal trial began. And in March 25th, 2022, um, the jury found Vaughn guilty of criminal negligence and abuse of an impaired adult. So Maria, what do you think about this? Well, uh, I would say that there's definitely, definitely some concerns here and in a holistic way, kind of like we're looking at from our angle, right? What does this mean for healthcare and how does that cause ripple effects and unintended consequences for the rest of us? In healthcare, whether we're pre-hospital, in-hospital, etc., um, I think one of the things from a mental health perspective that stands out for me, um, as you know, I have a social work degree as well as being a paramedic, um, is when you have situations like this where administration tells you, you know, listen, we're not going to fire you, we're not going to pursue this criminally, whatever they tell you, and then they go back on that, that leads to an administrative betrayal, which is actually something that can contribute to PTSD, right? And so that's very concerning for just the individual. What that means for everyone else, just looking at it on paper or in the news is, well, if this person's place of work can turn on them and say, listen, we're going to criminally go after you and charge you for this, instead of just saying, you know, listen, we're going to let you go or we're going to let you resign, whatever, and then be on your way, but actually pursuing criminal charges instead of just the civil charges that could have been incurred on a, on a level with the, uh, the patient's family or whatever. Um, it just, it's not good for the system, the healthcare system, and in my view, and I think in, I think that's what's scaring people and having people resign. So that's my take on it holistically. I, I'm gonna tell you why this criminal conviction of this nurse was a good thing. You ready? It's well for EMS, let's put it this way. Okay. okay first, first. Um, in EMS and, and in, in healthcare in general, in, in nursing specifically as well, um, there's the go along attitude. Um, all the time you'll see that healthcare organizations and EMS organizations uh, force clinicians to violate the written policies because there's just no way to follow the policy and actually get your job done in the, in the responsible, caring way you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, they'll deny this, and they will certainly hang you out to dry. But the reason you override the Pixis five times is not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're lazy. It's because the system is designed in a way that stops you from doing your actual job. And there are a million examples of this in healthcare. I can give you one specific one from yesterday. Uh, 
where I was at a, a place where I work as a, as an educator, and I had to upload something to the state. But in order to upload something from the state, I had to take uh, student applications that somebody had emailed me and then log into my email at work on that computer and then upload it to the state. But that hospital system prevents you from logging into Gmail. It also prevents you from putting stuff on a flash drive and then importing it to the desktop. So I literally had no way for me to do my job without having to get up and come up with 17 other workarounds, which involved me emailing somebody who worked there, having them email, you know, it's it is a whole, you know, you, you had to come up with a whole focaccia thing, which just took 10 times as long right. as me being able to import those four documents and then upload into the state. Because that's what has to be done. Yeah, there's a, there's a lack of efficiency in a lot of what we do sometimes because we're working around and working against the barriers that have been put up that we're just okay with every day and we just let be. Yeah, it's not, even, it's not even that I'm okay with it. And also don't forget, like as an educator, I wasn't under any super time pressure. I had to get something <laughs> done like by the end of the day, which was like six hours. I had plenty of time. And no one's life depended on what you were doing. And no one's, <laughs> no one's life certainly depended on me uploading files to the state website. Um, now here, I mean, she, uh, Ms. Watts said she couldn't get a bag of IV fluids for a patient without using the override function. I mean, this is the system that they've set up. So here's the thing, if this conviction does one thing, if it causes clinicians to stop and say, I am not going to try to come up with a workaround, I am gonna force my system to confront this inefficiency and make them do it, uh, make them fix it, uh, that will be a win. And you can see, like, I don't, I, you know, I'm not a big believer in sacrificing individuals to the greater good, but at the, in the abstract, at least, a lot more good will come out of this criminal conviction if we can get 100,000 rules rationalized across the country, across the world. Um, and that's a huge problem. You know, we have to stop having paper policies. I work for EMS is incredibly filled with paper policies and paper um, checklists and paper um audits and yeah. <laughs> everything else you know, you know when i was uh, when i was a new working when i was working full-time working parent let's put it that way um i wouldn't take a job until i checked out my truck that's actually what your policies probably say you have to check out your truck before you take a job and that doesn't mean you have to show up early unless you're going to pay for it. That means you, do, you say, I am not taking this job until my vehicle is checked out. And when they say, really, really? Yeah. You're like, yes, that's actually the policy of the organization. Make the organization live with their own policies. If you don't want me to do a job so it's checked out completely, I have no problem doing that. Right. It's about the joint accountability and the mutual accountability on the part of the organization as well. Yeah. But don't force me into violating your own policies because it, you know it's it's convenient for you at this moment because because that's not what the policy doesn't say unless the supervisor tells you to do otherwise it says you know your vehicle must be checked out so that's what i'm doing um hopefully that's what every other full-time medic is doing like following their organization's policies now that involves reading them 
Right. And it involves, you know, some resistance because not everyone reads them and not everyone's going to be happy with that up front. Yeah. And, and, and you have to make people uncomfortable sometimes. And I'm not saying you have to stick to the rules incredibly rigidly at every moment of every day. I'm saying that when there's the, when you have to override the Pixis five times to get an IV bag, that's the kind of thing where one day you just to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Go to the manager and say, this needs to be fixed because otherwise I can't start this IV on someone. And you as a group have to agree on this because you're right. You will be ostracized if you're the only one saying no. But at the same time, until somebody has the courage to say no, you're all going to be in this situation. You're all going to be vulnerable to criminal conviction, losing your license, criminal conviction, because this is the culture of the, of the place and the time. Okay, second. The second reason this is important for EMS is the martyr problem. Um, you know, the first one is the go along attitude, just ah, come on, just take care of it, blah, blah, blah. The second problem is the martyr problem, where EMS people constantly do this. They they see the system isn't being run efficiently, and they feel like they have to be the ones who violate policies in order to make everything run more efficiently. And I get that, I do, but you're working against your own short-term and long-term interests. So one of the places I used to work, uh, the BLS crew used to, uh, whenever they would go to the hospital with the ALS patient, they would use lights and sirens. And that wasn't the policy of the department, that was just what everybody did because there was not enough ambulances in the city I worked. That's not a solution. Uh, that just puts you more at risk of getting in a crash, puts you more at risk of hurt, being hurting your patient because you're, you're getting in a crash. And most of the time your department will back you up, but God forbid something serious or significant happens, they're gonna hang you out to dry because you didn't follow the policies. Even though that was the way it was done, it doesn't really help when, you know, God forbid, God forbid, you kill a child, you kill somebody else with your, with your ambulance because you had lights and sirens because there weren't enough ambulances and you wanted to get back in service. And, and I don't, the reason I say this is because I've been in an ambulance that had killed people. Now, it wasn't going to the hospital, it was going to a scene, but it was a big deal, obviously. And, uh, you know, somebody lost their life because of it. And I wasn't driving, uh, but... I was sitting in the ambulance and it was a horrible situation. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, but we don't want to have uh, people lose their jobs, people lose their careers because the system isn't operating the way it should. You're not personally responsible for the lack of resources in your system and the system doesn't work to improve itself unless you stop trying to accommodate that. You don't get an extra truck unless you stop you know, using lights and sirens going to the hospital. If you can justify there's no vehicle available you know, 20% mm -hmm. of the time, you're not gonna get another truck. Well, we so talked about this during the pandemic too. Like if you're, if you're gonna be the one to say, listen, you don't give me appropriate PPE, I can't go on this job, yep. right? Nothing's gonna change, right? So it's like, if you're not putting up the boundaries to ensure not just your safety, but the safety of patients, which is our customers, right? Then 
you're going to lose something there. Yeah. And I would actually, you know, when they start telling you to do that, I, I, listen, I, I have said before, it, I would have never permitted EMS agencies to go on a possible COVID job without appropriate PPE in the beginning. I, I, it's not that I don't care if people get hurt and die. It's that you can't expect somebody to put their life at risk because your system hasn't prepared to give them the, the appropriate tools to do something safely. Um, and that's an important distinction. Um, and so those two things, the, those are the two reasons. I, I think that we should be jumping up and down about this um, at EMS conferences and talking about it because the go along attitude and the martyr problem are things that are so pervasive in EMS. Um, and they've been pervasive in EMS for a long time. It's very rare to find a place where there's a real organizational problem and management is actually willing to try to fix it. Um, you just don't see it that often. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure there is some Nirvana place where uh, management and the clinicians work hand in hand to try to improve the system to make it work as efficiently as possible. I've just never seen it. Um, and that's a shame, but that's a, you know, trying to make the system work is a hard thing to do. But I don't wanna see people in EMS suffer for uh, trying to do what they think is the right thing to improve the system or to account for the def defects of the system and actually um, they get hurt as a result. And so does the patient. Does that make sense? Agreed. Yeah, so do you, do, you, do you think anybody is going to pay attention to this in a year? Uh, you know, we've got a huge, a huge staffing problem right now. We've got a huge problem uh, in, in EMS in general. We're, we're degrading care uh all over the place because no one's willing to invest in paying paramedics a living wage and they're having better opportunities so i mean do you see do you see ems sort of becoming more professional or does it just degrade further to where i think it's i, I think it's going to degrade further i think there's always a degree of something has to get worse before it gets better especially with the biggest problems that we look at, right? Um, I think maybe that will happen here. And in my experience, I think it really comes up to the individual healthcare systems or the individual organizations um, to make this work for them and kind of set a precedent that causes a ripple effect. It always comes down to the single person and the single agency making a change that has the ripple effect, just like the negative changes can have a ripple effect, right? The positive changes have the same um, potential. So. I mean, I work somewhere and I continue to work there still, even though I have to travel a distance because they're adequately staffed, because they have full-time medics. They have three full-time medics on at a time, one in a responder, two in an ambulance. They cover the whole district. We never have to mutual aid anything. Um, and during COVID, they actually added a fourth medic to be on from 10A to 10P and 10P to 10A. So there was a fourth, and then they ended up ditching the overnight 10 to 10, but they kept the daytime 10 to 10 because they realized with two fully staffed ALS trucks, they were getting more done. 
and it was efficient and they were willing to invest in it. And they saw the, the benefits and the outcomes from that. And this is not a paid for service place. This is somewhere covered by taxes. So it wasn't as if it was more billable or whatever else. It was, you know, this is where the work is getting done and we're keeping this. And because they provide benefits and they're full-time and, you know, everything else, they have an agreement, you know, the, the staff gets along well. It's, it doesn't have a whole lot of turnover. Um, you have better patient care as a ripple effect, but you also have better job satisfaction on the people there and they're staying. So, and um, I'm one of a few per diems that works there. I don't work there full-time. But my job satisfaction is better because the people I work with are consistent and I'm consistent. I've been there for six years as a, as a per diem, you know? Um, and I think a lot of the trouble that we're facing in healthcare is that we got ourselves into this travel thing where this loop and we keep trying to put band-aids on different areas geographically and we're sucking resources from one place to give them to another. And it's working temporarily for wherever that is but it's not working on a wide scale. And it's also causing people to really think, you know, if this is what I'm worth, then why am I working for a third of this money? Um, and that's not just an EMS thing. That's a, a nursing thing. It's a big nursing thing right now too. It's a great, that's a great leader because in a, in a week or two, we're going to be talking about working as travel medics, which is what I did <laughs> for three months and what you did earlier this year as well. And we're going to try to talk mm -hmm. to one or two other people about working as a travel medic in another state and uh, that, that experience. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's also some consequences that come with that that could be just like this case. So it is kind of relevant, right? If you're working in an area where, you know, you feel like you're playing rodeo and you don't know, you know, where where you are, what the resources are, what protocols you're under, you know, um, depending on where they shift you to, um, whose authority you're acting under, how to document. Uh, and this nurse, I think is a good example in a sense, the one that we're discussing because if you're working as a floater, um, you know, who's your real authority point? And, you know, how well do you really know every area of the hospital that you could potentially be assigned to do something at? And if you're really walking in and giving a medication and leaving, and that's normalized, you know, where does the responsibility fall to an extent? Of course, some of it's going to be partially on you, right? Doing the six rights of medication, right patient, right dose. We talk about this in paramedic school. We talk about this everywhere in healthcare when we get initially trained. But there's also going to be that joint accountability of like, well, who, do, who did I check this with? You know, who did I hand this off to? Was Why was no one monitoring the patient or with them, right? So I can tell you that in three months as a travel medic, I didn't meet our physician medical director one time. Yeah, I would say for the three weeks that I was at my assignment, same thing. I did watch a YouTube video of who they were about just to you know, <laughs> get myself educated, but... <laughs> Oi, um, so have you actually, uh, I mean, I know you sort of, I know you, but there we go. We're running out in 10 minutes. Um, have you actually ever had just culture training or read the Institute of Medicine report to air as human? So uh, they have a push at the healthcare system that I work for currently in humanism. And that's, that's a big nursing category, but they train all employees for humanism at some point, whether it's an orientation or they do it as, you know, an annual. And um, part of that is to air as human. They mention it. Um, they recommend reading it. I myself has not, have not read the book cover to cover, but I did go to a conference where it was discussed in detail and watched a, a bunch of patient accounts and patient family accounts of different consequences of medical errors that were mentioned in the book, et cetera, like some personal interviews that were primary sources. And um, I'd also say to pair with that book, 
there's a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, and it does discuss on some level simulation, why simulation is important instead of practicing everything for the first time on a patient. Um, and that's, you know, a little bit of a stretch from the degree that he talks about it, but simulators are important. Um, and also, you know, we got, we got a lot of what we do in healthcare from other professions like the airlines. You know, there's a reason why we don't have plane crashes every day. It's because there's an extensive check system in place. And if it was, um, I think this is mentioned into air is human. If we have, you know, if we had the amount of plane crashes as we have medical errors, they would shut the whole thing down and say we yes. can't fly planes anymore. And it was so, the seventh uh, healthcare errors were the seventh leading cause of death. And I'll mm-hmm. I'll also dig out a Wal Gawande's um, article from the New Yorker about checklists, the checklist manifesto, mm-hmm. um, and the AHRQ documentation uh, as well. Uh, and yeah, the reason I bring this up is because this was a big deal ten years ago, a big deal twenty years ago. Um, I think it's still talked about, but you see it's actually not being lived, right? And that's part of the problem is that if um, if this was lived, you would identify small system errors quickly and you would actually um, be able to fix things before they become a big problem. So if you had addressed five of her process errors, you would have stopped this from happening in its tracks. But when none of this is done, when people are just going a thousand miles an hour, when they're coming up with workarounds to make to make the system function, none of it gets fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and until, you know, this is part of the problem is that uh, CMS didn't cut off Vanderbilt's um, money flow. Uh, and what'll happen is and, until you, uh, people don't take anything seriously until there's money involved. This is part of the reason why I'm also in favor of getting rid of any um, extreme negligence standard for EMS. I, I don't like uh, you know, good Samaritan type laws that basically allow EMS to be as incompetent as possible because litigation and losing big sums of money is what forces healthcare systems to improve. Um, and whether your healthcare system is a hospital or a fire department EMS system or a private EMS company, it's the same thing that if you lose a million dollar lawsuit over something, uh, or you know someone who has, you will all of a sudden take that issue much more seriously than you would have taken it otherwise. And, and that's important. Um, I, I know yes. I'm so, I, I take a pretty contrarian stance that I, I, you know, when these bad things happen, I hope that organizations pay attention to the bad things so that they can change the way they do business so these bad things don't happen again. But it's also the employees who have to say, I'm not going to tolerate or help accommodate with this sort of uh, behavior. And this is what we saw in EMS during COVID. We saw organizations sending out their paramedics and EMTs on jobs without sufficient PPE, mm. and there was no complaints. There was no picket lines. There was no "I'm not going to do that." Like I just found that to be suicidal uh, on the part uh, of EMS people. I, I don't. Okay, maybe it's because I'm older and I've been doing this a really long time. Like my answer would have just been, 
No. And if I ran out of N95 masks, the answer would have been no. And if I didn't have, uh, you know, at the time, you know, gowns and, and you know, sufficient protection, OSHA compliant protection, mm. no, I'm not going on the job. And right. I'm not doing it. And I'm sorry, but this is, you know, I don't put gas in my ambulance. I don't get my credit card at the gas station to put gas in my gas in my ambulance. Yeah, well, um, we can use the the metaphor of you know I'm not gonna put something on my patient, right? Like if you look at the airlines when they do that PSA announcement, right, where they're like, okay, do this or TSA, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, put the mask on yourself first before right. you put it on the patient for oxygen. I'm not gonna starve myself of the ability to live for other people because that will take me out of the equation and therefore not do any good in the long run, right? I, because I'm, I could, I beat on dead horses. Um, ask yourself. I want everybody who listens to this podcast to ask themselves: When was the last time their ambulance was sterilized with either UV light or high concentration hydrogen peroxide solution mist? Um, because during COVID, probably more reasonably often. Now we're back to the same old attitude of. What do I care if, you know, hospital, you know, healthcare acquired infections are the seventh leading cause of death. I have to get out there and do another job instead of making sure I can get out there and do another job and take care of that patient safely. Right. But we're yeah. right back where we were. There's a sense of complacency, I think, um, in, in a worldwide sense, um, particularly in the U.S. too, um, where we look at things and we're like, oh, you know, I'm back to my, my level of complacency. I'm over it. Right. Um, but we can't be over it, right? And I think to spin off what you said in the Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, what they found with one of the airlines, I think it was one based in Korea. And they said you needed actually 19 breaches of the checklists that they had in place to actually crash a plane. Mm-hmm. So it's it, if you set up your system and you set up um, quality improvement and you look at process improvement and you do Six Sigma or whatever else you wanna use, the lean methods, right? you're gonna eventually zero in on enough of those mistakes to make a big impact. And then you'll get buy-in from people, but it's gotta start somewhere. I agree. And it's gotta start by with the clinicians because this is their career. They're the ones who are out there doing it every day. And they're the ones who have to say no. And and I know clinicians don't feel empowered. Um, I know, I've heard that out of people's mouth a thousand times. Well, what do you want me to do about it? Well, I want you to say, no, I'm not going to do this. And if enough people say, no, I'm not going to do this, then they're going to have to fix it. Um, especially in this era right now, where you can get another job tomorrow. Um, there's no reason to have to put up with the same uh, mm. complacency and being scared for your job that you might have had several years ago, because the demand is endless. We're seeing this with the great resignations, particularly with, you know, millennials and the like, um, but also across the board, right? And there's kind of a power shift going on. And so I think we have to be opportunists in that regard while this power is shifted um, to change what we do and how we're doing it. It's not even millennials with the great resignation. It's the generation extras too, like like me, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We said basically, (laughs) I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, Okay. So that's about it. Let us know what you think. Um, 
I'm going to put up this uh, whole bunch of links here with along with this uh, podcast. And then we'll be back next week-ish, uh, either uh, with a podcast about traveling paramedicine, which I think is probably our next topic, or the topic after that, uh, a riff on some of the things that uh, we should do to, to have a better relationships with patients and their families, which don't involve taking abuse necessarily. We hope they're as excited as we are. <laughs> yeah, because we're pretty stoked. So I got pretty aggravated about that, something somebody said. All right, thank you very much. And we will talk to you guys very soon.